Welcome to the fifth podcast episode created for the research project Humanitarian Diplomacy, Assessing Policies, Practices and Impact of New Forms of Humanitarian Action and Foreign Policy. Our research project is based at Christian Mikkelsen Institute, CMI, and led by research professor Antonio de Lauri, and the project is funded by the Research Council of Norway. My name is Salla Turunen, and I am doctor researcher currently investigating the humanitarian diplomacy conducted at the United Nations. Today we zoom into a well-known entity in the field of UN's humanitarian action, the World Food Programme, WFP. Joining me on today's episode are two guests from WFP's headquarters in Rome, Italy, Brian Lander and Rebecca Richards. Brian is the Deputy Director of the Emergency Division at the WFP's headquarters in Rome. Prior to this, he was Deputy Director for WFP's office in Geneva. He served as the World Food Programme's Regional Emergency Coordinator for the Central Sahel in 2019 and the Emergency Coordinator for Northwest Syria in 2020. Before joining WFP in 2009, Brian was with UNHCR for nearly 20 years, serving in duty stations in Asia and Africa, as well as their headquarters. Rebecca then currently oversees the Peace and Conflict Office in WFP's Program and Policy Division. Rebecca brings 20 years of experience with the United Nations in the fields of political affairs, peacekeeping, emergency response coordination, humanitarian development reform and policy. This includes postings in the Middle East and Central Asia and Africa. Brian and Rebecca, a very warm, warm welcome to the Humanitarian Diplomacy Podcast. How are you today? Hi, Sada. Great. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Fantastic. Very happy to have you. Um, perhaps we'll start with the very uh, entity where you stand and also this whole concept of humanitarian diplomacy therein. So the World Food Programme, like other UN entities, does not have a self-standing definition for humanitarian diplomacy. So what do you think uh, humanitarian diplomacy means in the context of WFP? And perhaps, Brian, you can start. Thanks, Sala. Uh, for WFP, I think humanitarian diplomacy really infuses a lot of what we do as an organization on a day-to-day -day basis. We We have a a large contingent of staff, nearly 90% of our 19,000 staff are based in field locations. And they're, they're working with communities every day. They're working with governments. They're working with other humanitarian entities. And I think you could characterize a lot of that work as humanitarian diplomacy. We're, we're negotiating access. Uh, we're assessing the, the status of communities and and whether or not they need assistance and and how can we bring that assistance to them so I think there is a there is a infused ability and capacity within WFP for humanitarian diplomacy diplomacy even though we don't necessarily explicitly call it that um, but having said that I think um, there are developments over the past couple of years that brings this much more to the fore and uh, and certainly situates WFP as much more of a an actor in the humanitarian diplomacy field. Great. How about how how do you see the concept of humanitarian diplomacy or the phenomenon of humanitarian diplomacy with World Food Programme? Well, for us, Sala, it's really about persuading those decision makers to take action. 
and to take decisions that support vulnerable communities and to take decisions in a way that respects humanitarian principles. So if I think about that, I feel that those decision makers sit at every level. You know, it could be your um, decision maker in the local community who is the leader that can decide who gets assistance and who doesn't or who brings the community together. It could be um, the local government. It could be at a national level at Capital, or it could even be all the way up to our membership who support the World Food Programme. As, as you know, it's, it's voluntarily funded 100%. So our membership, those who sit at Capital level and also at the Security Council are all key decision makers for us. So I think our work sits across and spans all these levels. So humanitarian diplomacy is in some ways affected by the full breadth of that. Mm. Absolutely, and I think it's quite illustrative that uh, what Brian also mentioned earlier, that the 90% of the staff members are at the field level. And of course, the food security issues and alleviating hunger in a, as a special mandate for WFP bring its own characteristics. But it's quite interesting that you both underline that this is very much a central issue for the entity. So why do you think that the WFP and furthermore the UN lacks these kind of definitions and policies uh, specifically on humanitarian diplomacy? Perhaps we'll start with Rebecca this time. Thanks, Salah. So I think one of the reasons perhaps that we have lacked the definition is because humanitarian work itself and the response to vulnerable populations has changed so much in the course of the last 15 to 20 years. I think if I look back since I started working in the system, the way that we responded to the tsunami compared to more recently in terms of the protracted conflict crisis are very different and the nature of, of the response has changed. So we see today a much greater focus on basic needs and, and rights and even the modalities in which we operate. There's a greater use of cash, for example, whereas 15, 20 years ago, that sort of much clearer sectoral approach where you have shelter and water and sanitation and food was more clearly defined. And, and I think these, these changes us also to continue to keep adapting. And in that, it's it's harder to then have a definition that withstands the test of time. Hmm. Brian, anything to add on that? Well, I think there's there's differing perceptions around what does diplomacy mean, and I think inherent in the word for many is is it's somehow political. It somehow brings us into a political dialogue, whereas we as humanitarians really want to maintain our our core principles of of uh, independence and neutrality as we as we respond to different crises and so as some somehow at least for wfp i think there's a little bit of a, a, a i guess nervousness when we talk about diplomacy and whether or not we have a role i think we tend to refer to quiet diplomacy the things that we do behind the scenes to try to facilitate access or to try to facilitate uh, how you know we work with governments. Um, and I, I, I guess there's concern that the moment that we openly admit that we're engaged in humanitarian diplomacy, we're somehow taking sides or we're, we're 
legitimizing perhaps one actor or another as we do engage in those discussions. So I think we need to come to a better understanding of what does humanitarian diplomacy entail and how, how is it used to best effect uh, for us in our operations and as we re reach out to communities. Hmm. It was quite interesting that Rebecca was really thinking about this kind of historical perspective of the change within humanitarianism. And of course, we know that the field has exponentially uh, grown within the past, let's say, 60 years even. And then Brian's reflections on this humanitarian diplomacy being political because of the diplomacy of it, which is also very, very uh, clear conversation in the field. This is something that I wanted to ask down the line in the conversation, but since it's such a juicy part, I'll bring it right now already. So uh, as we know, WFP was awarded with the Nobel Peace Prize last year in 2020. How about did the P Nobel Peace Prize in itself change the organization's humanitarian diplomacy in any way, in particularly in relation to this political and then this kind of historical de development of the organization? And perhaps we'll continue with Brian. Hi, um, sorry, we're switching the computer around as we speak. So. <sighs> Um, I think with the Nobel, uh, you had this very public and very prestigious recognition that WFP has been playing a role in, in building peace and certainly is, it comes with a lot of expectations that we will not only continue to do what we're doing, but we'll expand on that and, and develop further. It's, it's a validation of a lot of the work that we're doing but in a way linking it to peace which i don't think internally within wfp was was necessarily as widely understood as what we saw from the nobel committee and so i think it's 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 pretty extraordinary on the one hand that that recognition came through and on the other hand i think it does challenge us to think of our operations to think of our mandate uh, in providing food security around the world it challenges us to, to put that into the context of peace uh, because it goes beyond just an emergency response. It goes beyond just ensuring that populations have enough to eat. It's fundamental to the cause of conflict. It's fundamental to addressing those root causes uh, that are creating the hunger that we see around the world. And, and that, I think, is extraordinary. And I think it's, it's very welcome uh, in my perspective and, and how we do engage in these operations and how we uh, enhance our dialogues with governments and with other actors to have that recognition behind us and supporting us and doing that uh, is, is, a, is a real fundamental uh, shift, I think, for us and really gives us that confidence to, to go forward. Good. And uh, Rebecca, any, any thoughts here? Well, I really agree with Brian. And of course, you know, it's a great sense of pride that you have. Um, part of my work in the last couple of years has actually been on trying to find the evidence or looking at the evidence of WFP's contribution to peace. And in the research, it's been quite interesting because we found that de facto our, our work is automatically um, 
playing into the issue of peace, whether that's social cohesion at a community level or even the more structural social compact and the relationship between citizen and state. But it's something that we don't perhaps talk about. Um, so I find that the Nobel Prize gives us a bit more, as, as Brian said, confidence um, to be speaking about it openly. And I hope that it's challenging us internally. I believe it's challenging us internally to look more clearly at whether alongside food security, the issue of social cohesion should be, for example, that's just one example, should be a little bit more prominent in, in our objectives. You know, we're so dedicated to reaching those who need support and we're very, very, um, how would you say, single-minded, I think, in getting our assistance to those who need it most. We don't often think about the additional benefits that it brings. Um, and here we have, through the through the prize, but also through the evidence, a clear indication that, you know, through food, you can do so much more. And I think this is a responsibility that comes also with the prize, something to think more deeply about in our programming. Mm, absolutely. Um, and there is a quite interesting nexus that you're touching upon here is also this nexus between peace diplomacy and humanitarian diplomacy and this certain kind of integral relation that these two aspects and different forms of diplomacies have as well. But perhaps we move on and uh, think about now humanitarian diplomacy taking place both in crisis prevention and disaster mitigation and management. And as both of you can be considered um, highly pro professional, emergency professionals, uh, what kind of role humanitarian diplomacy plays in the context of sudden emergencies? And perhaps we'll start with Rebecca this time. So this is a great question, Salah, and I'm really glad that you particularly mentioned crisis prevention. I think the issue of prevention is something that we need as a community be, to be focused more on. And I find the linkages to humanitarian diplomacy really important, something we haven't looked at as much as we should. But if I if I consider sudden emergencies, one particular area, for example, that we're finding more and more requires the investment is, is that of social protection, shock responsive social protection systems. You know, when a a sudden um, disaster strikes, whether that's conflict or a natural disaster, being able to reach people fast is, is a challenge. And often it's a case that if you already have an existing platform where through cash you can immediately be able to make a transfer that allows populations to kind of survive that particular shock. And in this instance, it's really about making sure you reach everybody. So many times we've found, especially in conflict situations, there are communities that are marginalized. There are communities that are cut off. And humanitarian diplomacy is that moment where you can advocate to, to include them. And through that diplomacy, bring them in, for example, onto a national system that allows a more inclusive and equitable approach to populations. So that's that it plays an important role, not just in um, reaching everybody in that moment, but also in being able to build back better, I think, from a sudden emergency. Um, and that's something we should look at and take more seriously. Mm. Advocacy for inclusion, building back better, quite, quite interesting terms. Um, Brian, would you care to share your experiences here as well from this kind of emergency perspective? 
Yeah, I, I think maybe what I could speak to a little bit is what happens on the ground. And I guess, I guess as we talk about humanitarian diplomacy, we talk about, in a way, humanitarian negotiations as part of that. I guess diplomacy is a, a wider umbrella for things like humanitarian negotiation. And the, the negotiation side of it happens, you know, every day. I'm thinking of, you know, time that I spent in northern Burkina Faso where we were trying to reach communities cut off by non-state armed actors. We essentially would discuss with the local mayors, the local town councils, and understand when when were the market days happening in a particular area. And then, you know, getting our, our convoys to merge in with the different traders that were going to those villages during that day to try to make sure we were part of a wider group and just understanding that and, and having that um, sharing of information amongst the different actors to facilitate response really is, I, I see that as, as fundamental to not only the negotiations, but then also building trust, which I think is so key to humanitarian diplomacy. How do you build trust amongst both the actors involved, but then the communities that are affected? And, you know, going into markets, providing food in a market in one village that'll help another village that may be close by is a way of doing that. And I think those are are real sort of hard, direct ways of, of implementing the diplomacy and the, the outcome of that diplomacy uh, in a concrete way. Um, there's other examples. Uh, in, in Ethiopia today, we use a lot of our uh, discussion and coordination with with armed actors on the ground, we call it civilian military coordination, but really it's negotiation, it's diplomacy. And it's it's getting those actors to understand what we're doing, uh, to understand that we're not a threat to what their objectives might be in a in a military way and and getting through the front line and and getting to the people that need the assistance. Um, again, I think that's a translation of, of this diplomacy in a way to, to build that um, confidence and that comf comfort zone, as it were, with the different actors that we're not there to, to uh, tip the scales in any way, but rather just save lives. So I think those, those hopefully are a couple of good examples of, of where we put this into practice and the outcomes of that diplomacy are really practical and, and allow us to respond effectively. Mm. Perhaps we can continue on that concrete level and this kind of exemplified uh, issues. Um, I'm like to, I'd like to take the conversation next to the UN Security Council resolution of 2417, which is basically a resolution condemning uh, the starving of civilians as a method of warfare, as well as the unlawful denial of humanitarian access to civilian populations. And in a world where 80% approximately uh, of humanitarian needs are driven by armed conflict, this is, this is quite interesting intervention that arose from the Security Council um, three years ago in 2018. And in your recent article that you both re uh, wrote for Opinio Juris, you discussed that this resolution has, uh, that through this resolution never has before uh, the link between hunger and conflict being given such a clear recognition. So now if we think about this kind of conflict emergency setting to elaborate this link, um, how is, for example, starvation used as a method of warfare? And uh, perhaps now Brian's turn again. <laughs> okay. Well, I think we've seen starvation being very purposefully used in a number of contexts. Uh, 
Uh, you saw it during the Syria conflict where you had besieged towns that we had no access to whatsoever. And the disproportionate impact on populations because of that besiegement was, was clear. And the outcome of it was clear as well. You had populations that literally were starving. So, and, and we've seen an expansion of that in, in other crises. Um, we've, we've experienced it, I think, more recently in, in Tigray, where we do see populations clearly cut off. Uh, and the objective behind that is to uh, undermine support for, for armed actors uh, in those areas. And so the method is quite cheap and quite simple to implement. I think it's it's uh, it's it's a what do they say? They say that the the capacity to to do this um, is is just so as as a weapon as a as a method. It's it's so simple to to put that in place. You you surround and you cut off the population from what they need. Um, so I think there's a number of exa examples, South Sudan as well, where we've seen this very clearly uh, being put in place to to force populations and forced armed actors to um, concede and to give up what they're trying to do. So the, the Security Council recognition of this, I think, came about uh, probably following the fact that we had four famines erupt in 2018, earlier that year across a number of conflicts where they did see very specific uses of, of starvation as a method of war. And so that recognition was very significant, very significant, both for WFP, because again, it is recognizing the role that food actors uh, have on the ground, uh, but then also signaling to armed actors that this isn't acceptable. This, this is something that uh, should not be occurring in the modern world. Uh, and uh, whatever steps need to be taken need to be taken in the context of uh, preserving peace and security uh, as a fundamental role for the Security Council. So I think that link between conflict, hunger, peace and security is extremely welcome and, and very fundamental to the work that we do. Mm. Thank you, Brian. Uh, Rebecca, how about your thoughts on this one? Uh, using starvation as a method of warfare? So I think, Sala, that um, the resolution also goes into a level of detail that is quite interesting. It talks about objects indispensable to the survival of populations. And if you, if you look at the phrasing, it mentions, for example, food processing and food storage. Um, and we often we don't look enough at, at the, the conflicts that um, we're all responding in, but the targeting, for example, of fields or the targeting of warehouses is actually quite consistent. And it's something that we don't look at in enough detail. So for us, the, the re resolution actually surfaces these issues it, and you it makes you think, well, if there's going to be accountability, then we need to be more systematically looking at how, for example, um, objects indispensable have been targeted or are part of the targeting in warfare. And I think that this, this gives us a chance to really take that link that Brian was explaining and look to the next steps of, so what can we do about it? What happens next? Um, and where can there be accountability that could eventually stop 
this sort of systematic approach and at the same time save lives and, and prevent the loss of life. And I think that's what I, I hope that we're we're expecting the resolution to bring. I think it's been quite exciting. This last year we've seen a strong momentum around it. Um, even more recently, Brian and I were talking about uh, the work of the G7. There's a, a recent statement that focuses on famine, cites the resolution. And so I do feel there's a lot more political impetus around it that would allow for the resolution to become, well, dare I say, operational. Hmm. And it's the resolution and its theme in itself, it's quite illustrative of these different levels, once again, uh, where humanitarian diplomacy takes place. So we talk about this high level engagement at the Security Council, but at the end of the day, the issues themselves are heavily on the ground. The starving people are on the ground and the interventions that the organizations are trying to do. But since we are getting close to our time up, uh, I'd like to round off this conversation in looking into the future. So what kind of potential way forward do you see for uh, the World Food Programme's humanitarian diplomacy? And perhaps we'll give Rebecca the first uh, honour to <laughs> give her concluding remarks. Thanks, Sala. So as Brian started at the beginning and said that it, it's part of what we do. Um, and he's absolutely right. Humanitarian diplomacy is part of our, almost our everyday work in some shape or form. But I'm hopeful that we will start to become more coherent and more structured in it, a little bit more deliberate. Um, and I'm also hopeful that there would be a greater connection to political diplomacy and also to human rights diplomacy. I think it's important that there are these linkages. I think it's important that those parties talk to each other and that we're not so siloed in our approach to humanitarian diplomacy. I think we see time and time again that you need everything to come together to really make the change that we want to see at a country level and that we want to see for our people that we're trying to, to better their lives and help them. Um, so I hope that humanitarian diplomacy becomes part of a broader conversation um, and at all levels. Thank you, Rebecca. And, and Brian, any concluding remarks on the potential way forward for WFP's humanitarian diplomacy? Yeah, I, I think um, the developments that we've talked about, whether it's 2417 or the Nobel Prize or other other developments, I think puts us in this this interesting place at this point in history uh, where we do see rising levels of hunger we do see famine coming to the fore in many many instances and it's it's driven by conflict so i see this as a an important moment for wfp to really push the agenda and a lot of it i guess comes down to you know, what are we doing in terms of advocacy and ensuring that we're surfacing the kind of information, the kind of evidence that's needed to to really drive home this this conviction that hunger and starvation shouldn't be something that is so prominent in the world today. Um, and the fact that conflict or starvation is used as a method of war continues. Uh, for me, I think we need to have it at the level of uh, prohibition that we're seeing around genocide and other other terms that um, have become so clear in their message that this is just not something that is acceptable for humans to engage in. So I'd like to see 
the 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 council and and others being much more aggressive on this agenda and bringing it uh, much more to the public awareness that uh, this is this is no longer acceptable. Um, in addition, I'd like to see. I think I think there's room for a translation of 2417, the the Security Council resolution, to the regional level. It'd be great if the African Union or ASEAN or others adopted similar resolutions and were able to bring that uh, that perspective and that uh, clear um, clear prohibition on that kind of uh, uh, kind of tactics uh, to the regional bodies and then have that translated at the national level as well in, in terms of legislation. Uh, the right to food is there, right? It is a fundamental right and um, we don't often see that, however, put into legislation that can then drive these kind of accountability mechanisms that need to be put in place to ensure that it doesn't happen. So I, I see all those as elements of, of how we can go forward with this. Great. Thank you so much for these wonderful uh, concluding remarks. And thank you, Brian and Rebecca, for being here on the Humanitarian Diplomacy podcast today. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sala. Excellent. And for our listeners, thank you so much for listening and tuning in as well. And um, to stay tuned for more episodes on the Humanitarian Diplomacy podcast.